Thank you, Ryan and praise team and choir. What a gift to be able to worship today. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. We're going to be looking at verses 16 through 20. And these next couple of weeks, we're going to get our hearts ready for what is coming with our missions festival that we're calling our Refresh Conference. I will tell you, and I've said it before, it's my favorite weekend in the life of our church. As we bring in our mission partners from all over the world and around the United States who are planting churches in different places, we're going to have a great night at our banquet on Friday night. I hope you will sign up if you haven't already because it is going to be glorious. I just encourage you to come. I cannot wait for that event. And it's going to be two weekends from now. It's going to be wonderful. Friday night, Kathy Daniel, a dear, precious saintly sister in the Lord is going to be with us who serves the Lord on the mission field. I cannot wait to hear what she has for us. And let me tell you, in preparation, we got some things to do, church. Not only do I want you to sign up and decide that you're definitely coming, can I just tell you that you're going to come? I'm not giving you, it's not a decision. I'm just glad you're going to be there, all of you. But when we're there together on Friday night, also we're going to be able to gift to Kathy a very special love offering that she's going to use every penny to help support the mission work she's doing in West Africa, readying indigenous people to share the gospel and equipping them with what they need to take the gospel all throughout that country and beyond. And so we're going to gift her with a gift. I invite you, you can find a place to give to that on our website. You might want to give it on a Sunday morning leading up to, but I cannot wait for that. I've also heard from our cook, Miss Liz, um, Liz, that Graves, that we are going to need you to go ahead and sign up right now because, because we need to know how much food to provide, okay? So go ahead and get that in so we can go ahead and get our order in. Do that as quick as you can, but it's going to be a great, a great weekend in the life of our church. All day Saturday, breakout sessions, we're going to hear from our missionaries. And then on Sunday, for Joseph Velarde to preach, I cannot wait for that day too. He grew up in our church. He's planting a church in Pennsylvania area going to be a wonderful weekend, so be there for it. Well, we're going to get ready for that by looking at Great Commission texts, and next week we're going to look at Acts chapter 1, that as Jesus ascends into heaven, he calls us to be his witnesses from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria to the uttermost. I cannot wait to get to that text next week, but this week we're going to look at what may well be the most familiar of all the Great Commission texts in Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 16. And I'm really thankful that we get to look at this passage together. And I'm, I'm so struck by how Jesus gives us these words after his resurrection, after he has appeared to his disciples, and right before his ascension, this is what Jesus shares. And this is not a great suggestion. This is the Great Commission. And listen to these words. Beginning of verse 16, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when he saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. When you open up in verse 16, 
there are some details of this verse that you do not need to gloss over because it sets the table so perfectly for the command that comes in verses 18 through 20. I want you to notice how it all begins because there is first significance in the number. It says in verse 16 that when Jesus gave this to the disciples, it says now there were 11 disciples. Now that word 11 is significant and it's a perfect place for us to start because it just reminds us that something is not as it ought to be. When Jesus called the 12 disciples to himself, they were all with him throughout the entirety of his public ministry. But at this point, there is an incomplete number. One is missing because one of the 12 have betrayed Jesus. And you know that awful story of Judas? What he did when he sold out Jesus for a few pieces of silver? And how that cost him his life as he was gripped with a conscious that he could not overcome and a guilt that overwhelmed him. And it's such a tragic story of this life of one who was with Jesus, but never fully understood who he was. And so when you start this description of the 11, as you read about the Great Commission, it just tells us as we enter into this command, life is just not like it ought to be. There is parts of life that are just going to be broken. And there's an element of life that's just going to bring suffering. Lamar and Shirley, we love you so much. And I just think about, even yesterday, how even as we were able to honor Zach's life, it's just a reminder that we live in a world where people face unspeakable suffering. And as you think about the commandment to go into the world and tell others about Jesus, it starts with this recognition. There's 11 disciples and not 12. But along with this understanding, there's something else that you won't find in Matthew. You'll find in Acts. It tells us in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, that for 40 days, Jesus ministered to his people in between his resurrection and his ascension. And what a 40 days they were. You read about all the times that Jesus appeared to the disciples in those days, how he appeared to Mary in the garden. You read about how he appeared to Peter and reinstated him. There's so much in all of those texts as Jesus is showing his disciples that he truly has been raised from the dead. As he's dealing with, as we talked about just yesterday, the, the, the pain and the anger and the doubt of Thomas. All of those things were a part of the story of what happened in those 40 days that Jesus appeared. And the significance of 40 is something you don't want to miss out on as you approach this text. Because whenever you read about 40 in the New Testament, it always points you back to remember what 40 was in the old. And remember all of those years that, that you had Moses and God's people after they had left slavery in Egypt and were making their way into the promised land, but they had to first forego 40 years in the wilderness. So as you think about the 40 days that Jesus was there, the 40 days of the wilderness in the book of Exodus... Even if you read in the book of Revelation, you'll find in Revelation chapter 11, along with in verse 15, you'll find it also, um, you'll find it in Revelation 17, there's a mention of what happened in the wilderness. And whenever you read about the wilderness, it just reminds you that the people of God, as they're following the Lord in the wilderness, 
Their lives are marked with two things all the way through, suffering and witness. That's what you do while you're in the wilderness. That's what the people of God did back in the days of Moses. They witnessed to the attestation of the truthfulness of the one true living God as they suffered in the wilderness and God provided for them in that place. You see that every place you read about the wilderness. So the 40 days that mark the difference remind us of the wilderness until we get to the eternal home in heaven. Our lives are going to be marked with suffering. There's only 11 of the 12 disciples. But our lives are also going to be marked with the need for witness, to tell others about the glory of Jesus while we're in this place, waiting to be with him one day. So there's significance in the 40. There's significance in the 11 disciples. You find as we keep going, there's significance in the place that Jesus tells them. Earlier in chapter 28, he tells them he'll appear to them in Galilee. And don't gloss over Galilee. Not only was this the place of Jesus' public ministry, but as we read about it in Matthew chapter 4, verse 15, it's described as the Galilee of the Gentiles. So as Jesus is calling his people and commanding them what to do after he goes up into heaven, it reminds us of God's incredible, indescribable love, not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles and every single human being on the face of the planet. He's calling them from Galilee, a reminder that God loves all people who are made in his image, not just those who are of the descendants of Abraham, but of all people who would be received the fullness of God's promise of who Christ is, and that is for everyone. So he goes to them as he's going to give them a commission to go into the world, and he goes to them from Galilee. It also says he appears to them on a mountain. And whenever you find a mountain in the Bible, it speaks of the power of God. You read of that very clearly, even in um, the book of Daniel, chapter 2, when he is given the vision that was given first to Nebuchadnezzar, and he interprets that vision. And do you remember of that immense statue that he sees in a vision from the Lord, and how it represents the four kingdoms of the world, beginning with Babylon and ending with Rome? And as you think about that, and you read about that vision, you learn that what Daniel sees is an amazing mountain. The text says, not formed by human hands that obliterate and topple those earthly kingdoms. Whenever you see the mountain in the Bible, it speaks of power. It's where God in his power showed up in lightning and in thunder and gave to the people of God the word of God that was given to Moses. So all throughout, you see this beautiful picture of why Jesus was so intentional about creating this beautiful amphitheater in which he's giving his people this command and calling not just these 11 disciples, but the disciples of all the ages to listen and to heed to this last and final commandment before he ascends into heaven. But can I tell you, there's another detail that's often overlooked. Before you get to the command itself, there's 11 disciples there in Galilee. They're on a mountain that Jesus had directed them to go. And verse 17 says, and when they saw him, they were all mixed up. Because they worshipped him, but some doubted. Some doubted. I hope you don't miss that text. I hope you see how when we read that verse 17, this is what makes this commandment reachable for us. Whenever you read that word doubted in your Bible, I want you to know that the best translation of it is that some hesitated. 
is the same word that's used in the gospel when Jesus was on the water and Peter went to him while he was walking on the water. And while he was there, he was doing just fine as long as he looked to Jesus. But when he took his eyes off of Christ and he was overcome with fear because of the waves and the wind that was around him, the Bible says that's when Peter began to sink. And he cried out to Jesus to rescue him. And after Jesus did rescue him, Jesus looked at Peter and with a word of perfect rebuke, but love that knows no end, asked Peter the question, Oh, you of little faith, why did you hesitate? Why did you doubt? As you think about that, you've got to ask the question, why these are mixed up and why they are so hesitant. I love the way that Douglas Sean O'Connell, O'Donnell writes of this truth, and this is what he said. I love this. God uses imperfect people for perfect plans. Aren't you thankful that he uses imperfect people like you and like me for his perfect plans? And he uses bipolar disciples. Don't we all go back and forth from worship to doubt? And he uses them to be the ones to make the world whole again. So these disciples are hesitant. They have doubted. Not because they believe the belief in Jesus is too unbelievable for them, nor do I believe it's because they're trying to figure out if it's right, whether or not they should worship a man, like what we read about in the book of Acts when Paul corrects those who try to worship him. I don't think that's their struggle. I think we find them doubting because they're doubting themselves. Are we going to have the goods to deliver what it is that God has called us to do to take this glorious treasure of the gospel to a world that is lost in sin and needs to be saved. And so they're doubting themselves. Have you ever been there? So as we begin to get ready now to receive this message, don't you see how Jesus has set it up for us? In this beautiful setting atop of a mountain in a place that was known for its population of all of those around the world, not just the Jew, but also the Gentiles. He calls himself 11, even though there is one who has yet to be, reminding us that there is immense suffering, and it happens at the end of 40 days, a reminder of how we live in the wilderness. And now that you have explored the details of these verses, you're now ready to receive the command. And the command is very clear. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. Here's the lesson that I want you to consider. Every single one of us who know Jesus, as we think about these verses, true disciples of Jesus proclaim his kingship to the ends of the earth. That is just what we do. That is what God has called us to do. And if we're going to do that, there's some things we need to take away from this text to do it with faithfulness every single day. And the first thing that we think about is this. We need to trust the Lord to use our imperfect faith. That's why you have this bipolar discipleship that's happening here. Some are worshiping and some are doubting. And even as we think about how we are so much the same, we are such imperfect vessels, aren't we? There's nothing completely perfect about us. Well, maybe some of you are a little closer than I am, but at the end of the day, none of us have arrived. And we have such a long way to go. We're imperfect vessels, both individually, and we're also imperfect as a church. 
But even still, God's going to use us. Even still, his plan is to use churches just like ours with the people that are imperfect that make it up just like us to fulfill his mission on this earth. So we are disciples of Jesus, and God's going to use us and call us to then make disciples to go into the world and to make it whole again. That is what God's calling us to do as we share the gospel with others. So he commands us to make disciples, and he asks us to be honest about ourselves as we do it, so we'll trust in him. And these are some things that will be a part of how we live if we're going to really do that. First, we learn that the commission that he's called us to, it's costly. He calls us to go. Now, that call to go means we go to those who are close to us. Think about your loved ones and how much they need Jesus. You're to go to them. Think about your family members. You're to go to them. The people that you go to work with every day that you don't know if they know Christ or not, you're to go to them. Think about all of these who are around us, maybe even people under your own roof. Yes, we've got to go to these, but Church, we don't stop there. The Bible says as we go, we go and make disciples of all nations. So that means we've got to go to the ends of the earth. And it is not a cheap thing, an easy thing to be faithful to this calling. It is going to always be costly. Can I just encourage you with something, though, as I even think about how much it costs? Let me just tell you, tonight as we get ready to vote on our budget, this past year as a church, do you know how much we care about this as a church to take the gospel to the ends of the earth? This past year, when we take the gospel-centered efforts that we have given to and lump them all together, we have given just under, this year alone, $300,000 to church work, to gospel work all throughout the ends of the earth. Isn't that incredible? Now, you think about that just for a second. In one year's time, the amount of money that it would take to buy a house, a nice house in Smyrna, we're, we've given in one year to gospel commitments all throughout the earth. That, that's incredible to me. Out of all the money that's given here, every single penny of that's going to the ends of the earth to share the gospel. So as I'm speaking of what it costs to share Christ, I'm very thankful that I'm not speaking to people that don't get what I'm talking about. You know what it is to give and to sacrifice. And I hope that while there's always ways that we can give more, I'm so thankful. I hope you always know it for how I see that you're giving. But can I stop before we get too crazy about this and just say, though, it's not just a matter of what it costs us with our bank accounts. We also need to weigh what it's going to cost us with our very lives. Because if we're going to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, you know what that may mean? That one of my four daughters may be called to take the gospel to Afghanistan. What that means is that God's going to call us to go to the hard places regardless if there's a threat of political pressure, whether or not we are going and whether or not it is safe. There is nothing safe about fulfilling the Great Commission in the way the world views safety. But then we understand the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. So every single time we send out our dear friend Kathy in the face of whatever extremist group that might be out to get her, and she has to even watch who might be trailing her as she travels within the city in which she serves, we know that it's not safe, but we commend that she's there, and we should be willing to do whatever it takes in our lives to also fulfill that calling, to go to the ends of the earth, to all the nations, no matter how hard it might be it costs us our money and it costs us our lives but we go so the commission is costly 
We also learn from this text that commission involves baptism. The Bible says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I'm afraid that too often, in the circles that we're in, if we're not careful, we can downplay the significance of baptism within our church. And I understand why. I, as, as, me and the, as, as we lived in the state of Kentucky, the home of a, of a movement that had started back in the 18th century called Campbellism that robbed churches of people trying to persuade them in a false doctrine called baptismal regeneration that you must be baptized in order to be a Christian. So many of our Christian churches, churches that are called Christian churches, have that at the source and the origin of their churches. And so baptism, we sometimes want to make sure, no, we don't want to make that mistake because we believe Ephesians 2 is right. You are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, not of any works that we would ever do. Ephesians chapter 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith, nothing else. All of this is what God has done through you. It is not a work so that we cannot boast. And so we want to make sure we're doctrinally sound to point people to the fact that they can only be saved in Jesus. But please hear me. Let's not make the mistake of overstating that point and undermining the importance in the doctrine of baptism. Right here, a part of the Great Commission is that the baptismal waters are stirred with new believers who come to Christ. I cannot think about why anyone would want to follow Jesus and not be baptized. It's such an important mark of obedience because Christ has called us to be baptized, and he calls us to go into the world baptizing others. I was just thinking about this not long ago when I was studying the book of Mark in my quiet time, and I was struck by the passage. Remember when Jesus is with John the Baptist? It's at the beginning of his public ministry. And the Bible tells us that he let John the Baptist baptize him, and John the Baptist protests, and I'm not even worthy to tie your sandals. Why me? And Jesus says this is to fulfill the will of God, and so John the Baptist takes on that responsibility, baptizes Jesus in the River Jordan. And remember what happens? The Spirit descends like a dove upon Christ, and a voice is heard from the heavens as the Father declares of the Son, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. I was thinking of that the other day when we were doing a baptism. You know what I was thinking? Since we are united in Christ, since in Christ, since we have a relationship with Him and we are found in Christ, the repeated message of the book of Ephesians, listen to this. Every single time someone is baptized in a baptistry like ours, if they have truly come to know Jesus, it's as if the Father is declaring, this is my son, this is my daughter, on whom I am well pleased. Let's not understate why baptism is so important. The Great Commission involves baptism, but also the Great Commission requires longevity. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And listen to this. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Discipleship is a part of evangelism and the Great Commission. You can't separate those two. Teaching them to observe all. You know what all means? It's really theological. It means all. Everything. From Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, all the way to the end where it says, Come quickly, Lord Jesus. we got to teach people 
all that God has commanded. Every bit of it is important. Now, I want to just take a minute and explain to you, this is why on Sunday mornings I preach predominantly books of the Bible, verse by verse, and you wonder, I wonder where the pastor's going to be next week. It's kind of predictable, isn't it? You don't have to really guess. It's kind of like getting up in the morning and knowing that Allie wants me to make a pot of coffee in the morning because that's how she starts her morning. You can come to church and I'll wonder if I'm going to be surprised. You won't. I'm going to preach whatever I stopped at, wherever I stopped last week. You want to know why? Because I want you to have the Bible in your heart. I want you to know it. I want you to know all of it from the beginning to the end. That is the only thing that's going to transform your life. And it doesn't matter how creative I can get or how engaging I might want to be. If I don't preach the Bible, I'm not preached at all. So we've got to have the Word of God every single week. We need it in our lives. That's why we talk about daily Bible reading. How can we even live without it? If we're going to fulfill the Great Commission, we've got to know all that God has commanded, and we've got to teach others everything that Jesus has taught us. That's why we preach the Bible every week. When I think about my approach to preaching, let me just give it to you in a simple illustration. You've probably heard this before, but I'll give it to you again. I love it so much. When I was in high school, I had to do a titration drip test in a chemistry class. There was a beaker, had a clear substance of some kind, and I were to take this substance and drip it into the beaker, a clear substance into another clear beaker, and number, take a record of the number of drips as to when it goes from clear to all of a sudden with one drip it goes pink. And when you study those drips, you know when there's been a change, and it tells you if it's an acid or a base. So you spend the whole class, and sometimes it's boring. I mean, drip, 1, 2, 39, 47, 153. I mean, the whole class was like, wait. But then before the bell rang, sure enough, it turned pink. Can I tell you, boy, pastor's been in Nehemiah for, for three months. Why are we doing that? It's a drip, church. It's a drip. Man, we've been in Genesis for a year and a half. Lots of drips. My goodness, the book of Mark, we're going to be in the gospel of John the whole birth. That's a big book. Drip by drip by drip. And eventually, if you're submitting your life to the word of God, the color changes, you're transformed, and you're never the same. And you don't want anything but those drips. In fact, you get mad at me if I don't give you drips. Oh, preacher, won't you please preach the word of God to me today? I don't need anything else. I just need the word. I just need the word because we've got to train others to teach them all that God has commanded, every bit of it, all of it is the Word of God. we got to have it. So the Great Commission requires longevity, the full counsel of God's Word. But as we understand what it's going to require of us in our imperfect faith, there's something else I want you to consider. Anchor your obedience to the authority of Jesus. My goodness, look at his authority. In verse 18, Jesus told them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. All authority. Authority over everything. Think about his life. When he was with the disciples in the Sea of Galilee, they grew terrified of the wind and the waves. And Jesus they go to Jesus, are you just going to sleep while we die? And Jesus says, peace. And he's got authority over nature. 
Remember when the paralytic came with his four friends, dropped him through the roof? And they were there in front of everyone there. And you expect Jesus to say first, what? You're healed. But that's not what he says. Your sins are forgiven because he's got authority over sin. And by the way, that's what separates us from the Lord. That's what we need forgiveness from and to be healed of more than anything else. But he doesn't just have authority over sin. He's also got authority over diseases because he tells that man to pick up his bed and walk. And he does. Why didn't he do this kind of miracles today? He still does. And listen, the moment we breathe our last and we're ushered into heaven, we're given a resurrected body free from any of the ailments that we suffer with now. And that's as certain as the fact that we're even together today. I'm so struck by this text. Think about his authority. Authority over evil spirits. They can't even speak unless he gives them permission. Authority over the nations. Just Come on Wednesday night, study the book of Revelation, how there will come a day when he comes on his white horse with the train of his robe dripped in blood and he takes justice over any evil force that opposes him. There is no nation that can stand before our God and he will be seated on his throne, on his kingdom. You know what I'm so struck with? When you think about how does all this end? Revelation chapter 11 verse 15, when the angel blows his trumpet, There's a loud voice in heaven saying, listen to this, the kingdom of the world has been the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Did you catch that? The kingdom of our Lord in heaven will be as it is on earth. So as you're praying the Lord's prayer, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You're saying, dear Jesus, give us a taste of what it's going to be like forever. He has authority over all the nations. Nothing can stand against him. And he's got authority even over death and that he was raised from the dead and he conquered it forever and ever. And how does he use that authority? Listen to this in Matthew 25 when it comes to the Great Commission, verses 31 and 32. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. I cannot wait for that day. And before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He uses his authority to showcase how glorious he is and to separate those who know him and those who don't. So his authority should motivate us. As we think about his authority, it should motivate us. And we don't do things out of obligation then. We do things because it's our joy to serve a God who's this powerful and amazing. What do you get joy in? Were you celebrating last night? Was there a reason for joy about 11.30 when Eddie Rosario hit that home run? You want to know what your preacher was doing? Watch this. (laughs) Mama has a headache. Mama's got a headache, Daddy. Be quiet. That's what I was doing. I couldn't believe it. He hit that home run. I couldn't believe it. And there's reason for joy. Man, we get excited about a ball game like that. Isn't it fun to do that? You can take it off now. But as I think about the joy that so many of us felt when they hit that home run and they're going to the World Series, can I just submit to you that if we really understand what God has called us to, 
if we could join the angels in heaven that rejoice when one lost person repents and comes to Christ, isn't this joy even greater? To know that God can use you as a tool to bring others to saving faith and knowledge of who Jesus is. So his authority should motivate us. It's our joy to serve him as his ambassador, to plead with others to come to Christ. His authority gives us confidence. Jesus rose from the dead. We go to them, others with the confidence of knowing that we're going in agreement with what he's called us to do. The whole logic of the Bible, which is irresistible, is this. If there really is a heaven and there is, and there really is a hell and there is, and the only way to go to heaven and not go to hell is to trust in Jesus as Savior, then the most important thing we can do is tell people how not to go to hell, how to go to heaven by trusting in Jesus as Savior. That's the logic of the Bible. It's what calls us to the Great Commission. We do so because we have confidence that the one who's called us to go supplies what we need every time. So we go in his authority, anchor your obedience to that authority, and finally rely on the presence of our king. Look at how it ends. Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. His presence. Oh, the presence of God. His authority is what gives us confidence, but his presence is what gives us encouragement. And we need it. I tell you, when I think about the encouragement that we have in him, we go in his authority. We go in his presence. Here's the truth. It's never about our performance. Now, I hope you'll be good at sharing the gospel. I want you to be a trained to be that. I was sharing with somebody one time, being an evangelist, which all of us are called to be, is compared to a, a scalpel in the hand of a surgeon. And I want to be the cleanest and the sharpest scalpel I can be so the surgeon reaches for me before he reaches for anything else. How about you? But it's not about our performance because our success is always based on God's power. He's the one that uses the scalpel, how he sees fit. And that just gives us such peace and such confidence as we live each day serving him and sharing the gospel with others. So much more I could say. I'm going to wrap it up. What a text. I want to end with just sharing with you. I heard a preacher, a good old preacher who just loved telling people about Jesus and sharing the gospel, explain what motivated him all the years in his ministry. And I want to share with you some of the wisdom that I got when I read this. He said, the thing that gave me focus, the thing that kept me from being distracted, because let's just be honest, it's hard sometimes to get keep our gaze on the gospel-driven, eternal matters that we should focus on. When we got everything from school deadlines to meet to all the challenges of life. When you got a call because you were apple-picking this past week and someone decided to back into your car in a parking lot, I'm not going to tell you who that happened to. But you got to figure out what to do with all that. When you're dealing with all the challenges, it is so easy to get so distracted by the challenges that life brings. But if only we could live each day the way this pastor explained. He said, if every interaction that I have, every time I go to the grocery store, every time I see a bank teller, every time I'm out in a public place and I'm encountering other people, I'll look at everybody in my life as if they've got a big L tattooed to their forehead or a big S. And the L stands for lost and the S stands for saved. 
And then he said this, unless they've given me certain reason to believe they have an S, I treat them all like they got an L. That's it. Because there's going to come a day that they'll have to stand before the Lord. But instead of thinking about that day from the perspective that we so often are like, well, I'll be fine because I know Jesus. Can I put a twist on the way we think about whether or not we're ready to stand before him? Let it not just be because you want to make sure you've got a home in heaven. Are you ready to stand before him because you have shared with everyone that God has given to you to share a gospel with? And will you stand before him having spent your life in that way so that then you can hear him say, well done? I want to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes. We're going to have a time of invitation. And I tell you, I'm so thankful for the great commission to go into all the world and to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded and the promises that he'll be with us all the way through. And as we think about what it takes for us to fulfill that calling, let me just encourage you this. If you've never trusted him as Savior and Lord, I want you today realize that everything about Jesus is true. The one who so tenderly and graciously allows us to join him in this mission, it all starts with you coming to the place in your life that you realize how much you need him. That you can't, you can't depend upon your own goodness or your own strength to ever be right before the Lord. Only enthrone yourself upon God's grace to do for you what you cannot do. And that's what Jesus did. He saw us in this hopeless place of brokenness because of our sinful rebellion against him. And he came to this earth and descended to this earth and he died on the cross and was raised from the dead, conquering death forever, answering the issue of sin, taking the full wrath of God against sin in himself, and then raising from the dead so that we could have new life. Won't you just trust in him so that you can pursue and discover what God's will is, what God's design is for your life. If you've never found it, won't you find it today? Won't you begin the journey of serving Christ? Father, I thank you so much for your word. Father, make us a church passionate about sharing the gospel with people who so deeply need it. May we hit refresh in our life. There has been so much to get distracted by with this awful pandemic. But Lord, give us a heart for others that beats with the gospel so we can go to those who need Christ and share how much you love them. Father, thank you so much for the great commission. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.